0: Can you imagine talking to someone who shot you? Can you imagine forgiving someone who shot you? I mean, can you imagine calling this person your friend? I mean, why would you want to? Would you want to? I mean, it almost seems crazy. But yet, we're going to read a passage of Scripture today. We're going to see that Jesus tells us to actually love our enemies. So we're going to talk about what that looks like and how we can do that. And um, that in Christ, not naturally, but in Christ supernaturally, that we actually have the resources we need to do what this man did. But as we look at this passage, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 5, we also can uh, I, I want us to talk about just what Jesus says about our neighbor, and, and I want us to think about like who's our neighbor and who's our enemy, and it may look different than uh, than what it what you think it does, and, and I want us to just think about the question: Are we making people into enemies when we don't have the right to do that? So, let's go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, and. The title of the sermon is, this is the last message in the series we've been doing about true love in an unloving world. It's called Love Without Limits. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is commanding us to love people without limits, even people who don't love us, even people who aren't like us, people we don't like, people even who mistreat us. And this is what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor And hate your enemy. And understand here just for some context, this is the sixth and the last occasion in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus uses this phrase, you have heard that it was said. And what he's dealing with here was some uh, false teaching that uh, the the rabbis, that the scribes, that the the teachers of the law were, were giving. And you know, the Old Testament said you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But they were taking this and and taking, uh, you know, some other teachings that don't really go together and put them together. And, of course, you all understand, you can kind of take the Bible and twist it and put things together and take things out of context and make it say things that it doesn't say at all, right? And, And this is what they were doing. And really... Some of the worst teachings in the world come from twisted interpretations, twisted uses of Scripture, and God gets blamed for a whole lot of stuff that He never actually said. And so, in in the context, Leviticus, sorry, 1918, says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But also, the Old Testament talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but it's in a different context and, and basically uh, what the, uh, the context of that was, was the government. The government was supposed to exercise judgment. But the individuals, it says, love your neighbors yourself. And it talked about, you know, treating uh, strangers and sojourners in the land in, in, in the right way. And so basically, what it's saying is, an individual, we're to love and be gracious and be forgiving. The government is supposed to dispense justice. But they took the, these two things, put them together, and they also kind of took it that, uh, you know, the Jew is our neighbor, the Gentile is our enemy. And so we can love each other, our brothers and sisters and we can hate the Gentiles and so they're saying love your neighbor, hate your enemy and so basically it was a lie and it was a, it was a myth and uh, I, when I preached through the Sermon on the Mount about 10 or 11 years ago, I titled this section Myths That Make Us Miserable and, and because myths make us miserable, lies lead us astray and they can be worldly lies, they can be religious lies but if it's not true then it's going to cause us problems. Because, as Rick Warren says, behind every sin we commit, there's a lie we believe. What we do comes out of what we believe. And if we believe wrong, we're going to live wrong. And I'm telling you that this is not something that just goes back 2,000 years ago. I mean, there ought to be people wearing t-shirts around our country right now that says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy because that's how most people act. But here's what Jesus says. He says, but I say to you. Here's the contrast. This is what you heard. This is what I say. And he's confronting. he was confronting his listeners then, and he's confronting us now with this question. Who are you going to listen to? What are you going to base your life on? What's going to be your authority? What's going to be your source of truth? Is it going to be me? Is it what you think? Is it what your philosophy professor in college said? Is it what you've read on the internet? Is it what you're watching on TV? Is it what mama and them say and and your Uncle Bubba out there and just what you've been taught growing up? Who are you going to listen to? And so, Jesus said, you've heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say to you, though, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Kind of radical, isn't it? Kind of challenging, isn't it? Who are we going to listen to? Who's in charge? going to show what we do with this is like anything else we do with the teachings of God's word it shows who we're really following who's really the Lord of our lives not what we say it's what we do And he says, when we do this, he says, do this that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, not to make us children of God, but to outwardly demonstrate that we're children of God. And and we're following his example when we do this, because he's gracious, because he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? It's like, if, if you love people that are like you and treat you good, What's the big deal about that? He says, don't even the tax collectors do the same thing? And understand, anytime when they throw out the tax collectors in the New Testament, in a Jewish context, they were like the lowest of the low, scum of the earth. And so basically, it's like Jesus said, even the tax collectors do this. That's how low the bar is. So don't think it's any big deal to love people that are like you. In fact, at the Southern Baptist Convention, when he was speaking, J.D. Greer said something uh, along these lines. It's not an exact quote, but he's like, you know, what's the big deal about liking people, loving people that are, that are like you, getting along with people that are like you? He's like, this happens all the time in Nashville. Anytime Kenny Chesney or Justin Bieber do a concert, there's a whole bunch of people that are like each other that get together, and they don't have any trouble getting along. But you put a bunch of people together that are different and they can get along, that's supernatural. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than the others? Don't even the tax collectors do so? In other words, he's saying the pagans can get along with other pagans that are like each other. Do you understand? Part of the reason why God has designed the body of Christ to be people from every... People and tribe and tongue and nation. Why Paul didn't uh, uh, plant the first uh, Gentile church and, and the first Jewish church is because when we come together as one, even though we're different ethnically and culturally and in every other way, that's a supernatural manifestation and demonstration of the presence of God and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ within us. That's the point. And so he says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Which I think summarizes not just verses 43 through 47, but everything Jesus was saying going back to around verse 21. So, Let's unpack this, try to apply it to our lives, and I want to give you three, what I think are pretty simple truths here, at least simple to know, a little harder to do maybe, but I want to give us three simple truths, try to unpack them, explain them, and then hopefully help us apply them to our lives this morning. So number one, loving our enemies means that we are listening to and believing Jesus instead of the lies of the world. Loving our enemies. In other words, when we choose to love our enemies, when we act in love towards people who mistreat us, instead of trying to twist Scripture and justify it as, well, I can love my neighbor, I can love this person who's like me and this person who treats me good, but I don't have to love this person who's not like me or this person who doesn't treat me well. When we love our enemies, we are listening to and believing Jesus instead of the lies of of this world, including religious lives. So again, who are we going to listen to? Jesus has taught us, we've talked about through this series, Parable of the Good Samaritan, everybody is our neighbor. So everybody is to be loved. I think part of the implication of this is really, even though it's saying love our enemies, I think part of the implication is that it's people who or choose to be our enemy, or treat us like an enemy, it's not that we get to classify them as an enemy. Do you understand? It's a response kind of thing. And and it's certainly not something where I can mistreat someone, and then, uh, then they do something to me, and then I get to label them as an enemy and say I don't have to love them, He's saying the fault has to lie in them, not in us. He's saying those who curse you, those who hate you, those who uh, persecute you, those who spitefully treat you. So it's not what we do to them, it's what they are doing uh, to us. But even deeper than than that, I think, and, you know, we're going to move on to the next verse in in a few minutes and and just talk about very specifically, because all of us get mistreated from time to time, right? I mean, Jesus is not talking about something here that's um, just separate from real life, right? People curse you sometimes, have some people who hate you, people who have wronged you, people who have mistreated you. How are we going to respond? We're going to get to that. But but even, I think, under the surface here in the first part of this, and I think this is so relevant to where we are in our world in our society today, I think he's saying to us, we have to stop characterizing people that are different than us or who disagree with us as enemies. And out of that, we got to stop going at each other. He's saying that our mindset here, the mindset that's behind this is seeing everyone as our neighbor and not our enemy. Because that's two completely different mindsets. Remember, what we believe, how we think, determines how we act. Now, if someone is genuinely your enemy, like if we had an enemy attacking us at this building today, those of you that are packing probably ought to pull out your weapons. Right? That's how you respond to an enemy. Your neighbor, though, you're not pulling out your gun at your neighbor. Right? That'd be like a church discipline kind of issue. I I mean, I I hope you're not that neighbor in the neighborhood that everybody's talking about. (laughs) You all have that neighbor, apparently. (laughs) Because of how they treat everybody else, right? Um, I mean, I hope that with our neighbors, as much as we can, that we know at least some of them, and that we're kind to them, we're helpful when we can be, you know, we're not causing them problems or difficulties. We're thinking about them. That's usually How we approach a neighbor. I'm saying a neighbor mindset is one thing. An enemy mindset is another thing. But the reality is, I think in America right now, that a lot of our problem is so many people are functioning with an enemy mindset instead of a neighbor mindset. And it's one thing for people who don't know Christ to do that, but what Jesus is saying to us here, if we're children of God, if we're a follower of Christ, we don't have the right to live with an enemy mindset. He tells us to live with a neighbor mindset. This a little poem I came across with an unknown author when I was studying this week that it's got to be, I don't know how many years old, it's got to be at least decades old because I read it in a Bible commentary that's decades old, but I think it describes our country perfectly right now. It says this, Believe as I believe, no more nor no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. Isn't that how people act? I mean, this ought to be blazoned on Twitter or Facebook somewhere. Let me give you something I think is maybe even more powerful. And I think the Lord must have given me this, because, uh, I mean, this was over the weekend after the message was, you know, essentially done. I mean, Preston and I, we had lunch on Friday, talked about my message, and then I just stumbled across this. It's a guy I'd never heard of, a book I'd never heard of. His name's Dan White. He wrote a book a couple years ago called Love Over Fear. And in 2019, he said he went on a book tour, and then he was in 13 cities, and while he was doing this book tour, and, you know, uh, I guess he must have some, like I said, i never heard of him, must have a following, and people are coming out, you know, for the book signings or, or whatever, he said he did a straw poll of over 800 people. And apparently in this straw poll, and I understand, you know, a straw poll of 800 people is not like scientific research, but I, I think you're going to agree with me that this perfectly encapsulates our nation right now. But in this poll he did, he apparently asked people to either label themselves a progressive or a conservative, Okay, And so uh, he, he said in this that 76% of the people, three-fourths, who label themselves a progressive see loving enemies as complicity with injustice. Now, I didn't fully grasp that, that one at, at first. So let me unpack it just a little bit in case you're a little slow like me. Um, what, what what that's saying is is that three fourths of the people he talked to who said they were a progressive thought if, if you weren't a progressive, if you're a conservative, if you disagree with them, if you don't agree with their uh, you know, view of the world and how it's supposed to function, that for them to love you as an enemy, which I would think would mean they can't see you as a friend or a neighbor at all, that, if, that in doing that, they would be complicit in injustice. That, they, that you're full of injustice if you're not progressive. And like for me to love you as an enemy would be me joining with you in that. So That pretty much says that they think that to be like a righteous person, you got to hate the people that don't share their vision of the world. Now, lest you think I'm picking on progressives, that's not the point at all. So he said, even a little bit higher, almost four-fifths of those who labeled themselves as conservatives said that to uh, see loving enemies, 78% of those who identified as conservatives see loving enemies as compromise with immorality. So in other words, people who label themselves as conservative, people who aren't, You know, loving these enemies, that would be compromising with them. Now, let's think about what this means. And like I say, I understand it's a straw poll of 800 people, but I think when you just look at the world, you read, you listen right now, I think it's representative. So if three-fourths of progressives say people who disagree are enemies that can't be loved... And if three-fourths plus of conservatives say that those who disagree are enemies who can't be loved, how are we ever going to live like neighbors? And doesn't that explain a lot of what's going on in our country right now? In fact, how in the world are we ever even going to have a conversation if this is how we view each other? And Whatever your position is on stuff, and and I understand it's hard when there's two different views of the world. We talked about uh, worldview the last couple of weeks. If if there's just two different views of the world, it's hard to get together. But if you don't even see each other as like people to be loved, there's no chance of getting together. And how are you actually going to influence anybody if you can't relate to them in some way in love? And this is why it is so insane for people who think they are contributing to a cause by lobbying insults on social media. That is one of the most foolish things that I've ever heard because what you are are seeing, because what you are doing is you are hardening people in their positions. That's what happens when you get insulted. And you are losing any influence you have for Christ. And let me just throw this in. You know, most people would say I'm very conservative. You know, religiously, politically, whatever. I don't want to be known as a conservative. I mean, I I really don't. Because I'm sick of the culture wars. It's so misguided. I'm sick of labeling people. I'm sick of people seeing people as their enemy. Our enemy is not each other. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. That's what God's word says. That we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our enemy is not earthly. And if we want to make a difference, if we want to make a change, if we want to do what's important, it's about the kingdom of God, it's about Jesus Christ, and I want to be known as a follower of Christ. I want people to uh, hear about Jesus from me. I want people to see his love uh, from me. And that includes speaking the truth about issues and about things that relate uh, to, to Scripture. If you've heard me preach much at all, you know I don't pull a whole lot of punches, but I don't care about being conservative. You know, you know what one of the problem with conservatives is? We're in East Tennessee. We're in a Bible-believing church. Most of us are conservative. Here's the problem with conservatives. If you're not conservative enough for certain conservatives, <laughs> then they start turning on each other. That's why this whole thing is just a rabbit hole. It's just a one-way street to hell. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about and then I'll move on. But like I say, I think this is kind of the deeper issue here. I think this is so relevant in our society. You know, you may or may not know, if you're a member of True Life, you should know this because you've been through the membership class. If you don't know this... Let's go back through it again in August. But uh, we 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 are a Southern Baptist church. Now we don't talk about that a whole lot because I think denominations are secondary. It's about Jesus, it's about the Bible, it's about people. But there are reasons we're Southern Baptists, you know, we partner with the Southern Baptist Convention and Tennessee Baptist Convention. We partner with the Tennessee Baptist Convention and the Old Chucky Baptist Association, some of the church planning we're doing, those kind of things. We don't talk about it a lot. But you know, a lot of you know that, you know, me and Robin, Philip and Teresa, are interns, went to Southern Baptist convention this year last month uh, it's only the third time I've e- ever been and um, you know we went a couple years ago I don't know that I really said anything about it afterwards but I did this time in part because I just wanted to correct some things that were on the internet that were very incorrect I hope y'all know you can't believe much of what you read on the internet okay I'm not talking about just this I'm talking about stuff in general but I was there Okay, and there's a, there's a lot of things I could probably mention, but th- this is probably what got me fired up about it all. Okay, uh, and, and again, I don't care if people have different opinions about stuff, but uh, I got issues with slander. Okay, and there are just certain people, you know, in, in my life that, I mean, I don't really care that much what you say about me most of the time, but there are certain people in my life I get fired up when you say things about them, right? You say something about one of our elders, that's probably going to be fired up. Uh, you say something about my wife, that's going to get me fired up. Uh, you say something about Rusty's dad, who was my father in the faith, that might get me fired up. Well, somebody else that would probably fit that category is Dr. Danny Aiken, who's the president. Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you've been around True Life a real long time, you may remember the marriage and family seminar that he did here, and, and, and he preached here. And he, he's one of my heroes. He was my systematic theology professor, had a great influence in my life. I mean, he has has just a decades and decades long just record of integrity and, and faithfulness. He has four sons that are all uh, God's using in ministry right now. God is doing incredible things at Southeastern. I I think it's the greatest seminary in the world. Uh, but before the Southern Baptist Convention, there were people calling him a liberal, a Marxist, saying that he was denying the sufficiency, the authority, uh, the, the inerrancy uh, of Scripture. I mean, one of his sons joked about it, said, I don't know how he raised us and hid all this from us, but, um, <laughs> you know, apparently these people out in. Bloggerland, the internet world, Twitter, which is just like the cesspool of society, I think, ha- have figured this out. And so when I read this, I'm like, I mean, what are we doing? Do you understand? In the name of defending the Bible, people are denying the Bible by slandering a godly man. That's stupid. And, and my point is this. Stop making people into our enemy. Stop worrying about things out there that you don't really have any control over. Find the neighbors around us, the people we actually know. Love them. Share Jesus with them. Do all the good we can. Bless people. Help people. Encourage people. Be the church where we are. And, and let's get out of this I mean, let's get out. I don't care which side you're on. I don't care what your convictions are. You know, get out of the conservative uh, echo chamber silo. Get out of the progressive echo chamber silo, and let's go do what Jesus said and be salt and light in the world. Number two, I probably whacked that pinata enough. Um, (laughs) Loving our enemies is characterized by obedient actions. Look at what he says, verse 44. So you love your enemies? Well, how do we do that? Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So if someone curses us, someone cusses us out, do we cuss them out in return? Now Jesus says to bless them. This is talking about words. Someone who hates us, he's saying kill them with kindness, do good to them. Someone who mistreats you, persecutes you, you understand, we have hundreds, of thousands, millions of brothers and sisters of Christ around the world that are living this verse out in the persecuted church that are praying for those people who persecute them. We act like the world is falling apart if somebody gets our order wrong in the drive through I mean, let, let's just take this out of the, the realm even of somebody mistreating us. Wouldn't this just be a good rule of life? That we tried to bless people We If we think something good, say it, as Craig Rochelle says, that we try to do all the good we can to all the people around us, that we pray for those around us. Now, you may be thinking, and I hope maybe some of you are because this is hitting in maybe some difficult situations in your life. You may be thinking, how can I do this? You don't know what somebody has done uh, to me. I don't feel love for them. I I don't know how I could ever do this. Well, can I give you two suggestions that I hope will be helpful to you? Okay, one is theological, one's practical. Here's the theological one. It, it's kinda, it comes from some of Tim Keller's stuff. He just basically says, what gives us a basis to forgive is God's just judgment. And here's what he means. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. You know, people say, uh, you, know, you all talk about hellfire and brimstone and this God of judgment, and that makes people judgmental. I would argue it does the exact opposite. Because what Scripture teaches us is this. There is no justice without God. There is no justice without eternity. Are you banking on this world for justice? Why are people so angry? Because they know the world is unjust. We crave justice because we're made in the image of a just God. We cry, it's not fair, that's not right. And we're like, when's this ever going to get fixed? But the problem is we're looking for the kingdom without the king. And there's not going to be justice in this world. And if that's what you're basing your life on, you're going to be hurt. You're going to be sorely disappointed. But the good news is there is eternity. And there is a God that we're going to answer to. And there is heaven and there is hell. And everything is going to get set right when it's all said and done. And so based on that, because God is going to deal with every sin. Listen, everything that's ever been done to you, If it was done by a Christian, maybe they're saved now, maybe they weren't then. It was dealt with at the cross of Christ. Everything that's ever been done to you by a non-Christian, if they don't repent and trust Jesus, is going to be dealt with in hell. But every sin is going to be dealt with. That means you can forgive. You can let people off your hook knowing that they're on God's hook and God's justice and God's judgment actually gives you a basis to forgive people. It's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, uh, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. You can rest in the fact that God's going to take care of it. But here's the practical idea. This is very simple. But it's just true. You don't have to feel love for someone to love someone. You don't have to feel love for someone to love him. You don't have to feel love for someone to love her. C.S. Lewis put it this way, mere Christianity. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian only has charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not have imagined himself liking at the beginning. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? Let me give you maybe just a a more concrete real-life example to flesh out what C.S. Lewis is saying. So there's a newspaper columnist who was also a minister. His name's Dr. George Crane. And he tells a story of a wife one time who came in his office for counseling, and she just absolutely hated her husband at this point. And she said, quote, I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as, as he has hurt me. So this was the plan that he gave her. I mean, it ended up working out, but I don't know. I don't know if you want to do this, Lori. I don't know. But he, he said, quote, Go home and act as, act as if you really loved your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. And after you've convinced him of your undying love and that you, can, that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him you're getting a divorce. That will really hurt him. And so with revenge in her eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, that is beautiful. <laughs> He's going to be so surprised. You know, like This is going to get him good. And so she went and did it with enthusiasm, acting as if she loved him. So for two months, she showed love, kindness, listening, giving, reinforcing, sharing. But she never came back to see Dr. Craig. So eventually, he called her. He said, are you now ready to go through with the divorce? He said, divorce? Never. I discovered that I really do love him. (laughs) And here's what he said about it. Listen to this. Her actions had changed her feelings. Motion resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by fervent promise as by often repeated deeds. You're struggling in your marriage? Maybe try loving your spouse like an enemy and see what happens. Bless. Do good. Pray for each other. Both of you do that. I think I just saved you a bunch of money at a counselor's office. (laughs) And I know it's not always that simple, but love is more than emotion. It's an action. Last. Loving our enemies, what he's saying here is it demonstrates that we're genuine children of God. When we love our enemies, we're being gracious even as God is gracious. In verse 45 see, the Bible talks about grace in different ways. We usually think about saving grace, but there's also common grace. The fact that God is good to everyone. The fact that if we got what we deserve, we'd all go to hell the first time we sin, but yet that he makes the sun to shine, the rain to come on the just and the unjust. God is gracious to everybody. Now, he's particularly gracious to his children in Christ uh, through the cross, but uh, the implication here is this. If God is gracious to everyone, we're to be gracious to everyone. We're not to make this neighbor-enemy distinction. Everybody's our neighbor who's to be loved. That's the example we're following. Number two, he tells us when we do this, we're living in the supernatural instead of the natural. That's what he says in verses 46 and 47 when he talks about the tax collectors that I kind of talked about when we're going through it. Here's a great way to summarize it. Alfred Plummer put it this way. He says, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. It's the work of the Holy Spirit within us. We can't do this on our own. It's not natural to forgive. It's supernatural. It's not natural to love people who mistreat us. It's supernatural. But that's what we're called to. Something I learned recently in one of Eric Metaxas's books and I think this is so powerful. You know, we probably all heard the story of how, you know, Jackie Robinson broke the, the color line in Major League Baseball. You know, I mean, I've followed baseball since I was a kid. always heard about that. But this is what I never knew. And I think, you know, in so many cases, when you get down to it, when people are making a difference in the world, when you really look into it, it's because of their Christian faith. But Branch Rickey was the executive who hired him. You know why he did it? Because he was a Christian. He said this. He called it a chance to intervene in the moral history of the nation, as Lincoln had done. You know why he picked Jackie Robinson? In part because he was a great baseball player, but in part, the biggest part, because he was a Christian. And he knew that it would take supernatural strength, which Jackie Robinson found through prayer, to not fight back. Because if he fought back, it set it back for everybody. He said, I'm looking for a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. And that's really kind of what Jesus is saying to us in this passage. And he summarizes the whole thing. He says, you'll be perfect. If you do these things, you'll be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You say, hang on, how can I ever be perfect? I'm not perfect. Well, that's kind of the point. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, like the rest of Scripture, tells us how to live. But at the same time, it shows us that we fall short and that we need God's grace. We are imperfect. Now, the most amazing thing is that someday in heaven, through Christ, we're going to be perfected. But right now, we know that we are not perfect, that we have disobeyed, that we have sinned, that we failed to love God and others and sin in so many ways. And the Bible tells us that our sins separate us from God. But you know what the amazing thing about all of this is? Sin tore us apart, put us in enmity with the Father. But Jesus came and died not for his friends, but for his enemies. Romans 5, starting in verse 6 Puts it this way, says, When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Here's what the word reconcile means two things are together they're separated you bring them back together that's reconciliation we're creating the image of God separated by sin and enmity with God but Jesus came and died on the cross to bridge that gap to connect us to reconcile us back to the father so he died for his enemies that is the love of God that's the grace of God that's why salvation is only in Christ and not through anything that we do so here's my question for you Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? And if not, if you've never been born again, you've never met him, you've never surrendered to him, just invite you to do that right now. Just to call on his name, to tell him you believe in him, to ask him to forgive you, to ask him to take control of your life. When we finish, I'd encourage you to talk to somebody if you do that, if you have questions. Or you can fill out the connection card that's under your seat, or you can text TLC decision at 94,000 to let us know that you've made that decision so we can follow up with you. Or so if you have questions, or if you're online, you go in the chat and contact the host if you say you know i've been forgiven i'm not an enemy of god anymore i'm a child of god i've been forgiven through christ you know what this is teaching us we're to forgive others as he's forgiven us we're to be gracious as he's been gracious to us so if someone's wronged you do you need to forgive them do you need to lay that down Through the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ. Trusting if you let them off your hook, they're still on God's hook. Trusting that the gospel that forgave you of your sins, that cleansed you, is enough to also deal with the sins that have been committed against you. It's a gospel issue. Maybe maybe you're in the wrong. Maybe you have a broken relationship and it's your fault, or at least partially your fault. Maybe you need to go to somebody and make that right. I would encourage all of us to change our mindset. To think neighbor, not think enemy. And to live our lives to bless people with their words. Do good with their actions. Pray for the people around us. That's how Jesus has called us to live. To love without limits. Because he loved us without limits all the way to the cross. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, I pray, Lord, through your spirit. God, that you would set us free. God, I pray that if there are people who don't know you, that you draw them to yourself. God, I pray for people that are hurting, that have been hurt from others by healing, but that they would, by your grace, be able to lay that down and forgive. Lord, if people need to take a step to go to ask someone else's forgiveness, I pray that you give them the grace to do that. God, change their thinking Help us to listen to your word and base our lives on that. And help us to see people as our neighbor and not our enemy. And help us to love and bless and do good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we go.